Presidential historian Craig Fairman calls the autobiography of Calvin Coolidge the forgotten classic of presidential writing. The new authorized expanded and annotated edition of the Coolidge autobiography has just been published by ISI Books. Editors Amity Slays and Matt Denhart quote Coolidge in their introduction as saying, It is a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to the country for him to know that he is not a great man. We ask Amity Slays to give us some background about the re-released Coolidge autobiography, which was originally published in May of 1929, 92 years ago. Amity Slays, when did you decide that you wanted to republish the autobiography of Calvin Coolidge? Oh, a long time ago, Brian, because the thing about Coolidge is he was a good writer. And when you're a biographer, you, you, you try to flatter yourself you're an okay writer. And, but writing about Calvin Coolidge is a genuine challenge because he is a better writer than any of us. So one almost feels um, humility and competition with the subject in, in such a case. And I owed Calvin this. And uh, so the Coolidge Foundation finally got it together with the publisher ISI and did publish this book, his autobiography. Well, as you know, the number one difference to this book is all the add-ons, your introduction, 76 footnotes, uh, 34 pictures, speeches that he gave, and little notes in there from great-grandchildren. Again, uh, why now? What what brought it on in the last, you know, year or so when you decided to do this? Well, um, the, that that's two questions. The Coolidge family owns the rights to this book. Uh, and we thought the book needed context. There are older editions, but they don't have comments from the Coolidge family or the comment from Governor Douglas about the gubernatorial presidency because people are governors and become president or govern in a different style than people who are senators uh, and and uh, hope to be president, you know, or become president, uh, Warren Harding, for example. So we wanted to in- include that, uh, and we wanted to provide context for Coolidge in the current age, which, after all, is a century later. So with great love and effort, um, thank you for counting the footnotes, my colleague Matthew Denhart, the president of the Coolidge Fund, and I wrote those wrote those footnotes. We had to we had to be accurate, and making footnotes accurate is really hard. And in that, we had the cooperation of an extraordinary publisher, uh, ISI, who cared actually about the footnotes. Most publishers say no footnotes because oh well, that's too fancy. Readers don't like it. Readers love footnotes actually. So so thank you for noticing that. Uh, why now is Coolidge needed some context if you're going to republish him. He is relevant, but he he sometimes needs some explaining as to why, and that's what we sought to provide in this book. Here's a quote from the book, and I want you to compare it to our last 20 years, or for that matter, even longer. If men do not follow the truth, they cannot live. 1929 well, if men do not follow the truth, they, they deteriorate into 
thugs and idiots, right, is really what he's saying. And that kind of accurately describes much of our current political situation. I, I think what Coolidge was saying is men should follow institutions and ideals, not merely people. A strong man as a leader is important. A strong party is important. But the institutions of the nation, you know, our justice system, our local law matter most. And so do the principles that were the basis for those institutions. Um, Coolidge always emphasized principles and institutions over individual heroes. So I'm going to dip into the book and read back to you for your reaction. Some of the things that uh, that he said uh, and just have you put it into context. Um, One of the things and you you and I talked about your book, your biography of Coolidge back in 2013. This is a small thing and it won't matter to most people. But in your book, you pointed out that when he went to Amherst, and wanted to pledge a fraternity that his own buddy, Dwight Morrow, dinged him at uh, the Beta uh, fraternity. But then in his senior, he writes about it in his book, but he doesn't acknowledge that he was uh, blackballed early in his time. He says in his book that uh, the fall of 1891 found me back at Amherst taking up college courses in earnest. Much of its social life centered around the fraternities. And all they did not leave me out without an invitation to join them. It was not until my senior year that an opportunity came to belong to uh, what I wished to accept. That just—I thought that was just an interesting uh, little sidebar on on his life. Well, that's a, that's so you know uh, when we're eighteen to twenty-two, we're a mixture of vanity and insecurity, right? He wanted to be in a fraternity. <laughs> And, and Amherst was real Greek at that time. Uh, it was, I think, I'm thinking now that eight and ten young men at Amherst, a men's school, were somehow affiliated with a fraternity. He wanted to be in a fraternity. We know that because, uh, in addition to what you read, Brian, uh, he told his father he needed the clothes and the money for the clothes. He heard about fraternities, but it didn't quite work out, probably because... Um, Coolidge didn't exactly, he wanted to be asked nicely. (laughs) That doesn't always play out, right? You know, um, he didn't exhibit the right kind of enthusiasm. He was a cool cucumber. And then when he was left out, uh, some of this is my surmise, um, but uh, for some of this there's evidence. When he was left out, he felt kind of lonely. And it's interesting, he he admired Harlan Fisk Stone, who uh, later he made uh, brought to Washington um, as Attorney General um, Harlan um, chose not to be in a fraternity publicly. That's a different kind of decision. Uh, they said they used a, a Greek term, "udin," a person who is an outer, you know, out um, on principle. Lots of people choose not to affiliate on principle, and that kind of gave Coolidge. Uh, an identity. He was maybe out on principle, but it was a mixture. Well, uh, he was also out because no one he liked really asked him the right way. He apparently really was blackballed by Dwight Morrow. Um, And then a new uh, fraternity came to Amherst, and that is when Coolidge rushed senior year, um, the new fraternity, and did join. uh, And it's, um, it's wonderful 
um, that he finally got what he wanted. And the way it is in college, as we all know, is good things come in groups. He was also beginning to be recognized by his peers for his public speaking. So he was a loser, and then he was a winner. He was uh, with Phi Gamma Delta, um, the new fraternity, and uh, he met men from Phi Gamma Delta from other schools. And uh, I think you uh, uh, and uh, they heard him speak publicly. Oh, he's a good speaker. And suddenly there he was king of the world, the way you feel senior year when it all works out. That's a familiar story. Insecurity, vanity, stumbling, success, college. In your introduction, you say Coolidge has studied uh, modesty. Seems strange um, in our day. Perhaps that is one reason Coolidge gets scant space in our history books. What are the other reasons well, that Coolidge gets scant space in our history books? Well, can I answer both? Coolidge was, what is overly studied modesty? Sometimes it's sanctimony. It's not all virtue, right? There's an, and so you have to ask yourself, am I being so modest? It's just a form of sanctimony of showing off my modesty rather than genuine virtue. Um, and Coolidge was overly modest. Um, some of that was sanctimony. Uh, it would be great to have all of Coolidge's materials in one grand private sector library. He kind of didn't want that because he was too modest and therefore deprived the country of a legacy that wasn't just a legacy of Coolidge's personal record, but also a legacy of his valuable principles about thrift and budgeting and 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 uh, and many other things. Um, but another reason beyond his modesty, because that's what you asked, that Coolidge is not famous, is when we rank presidents, as in the C-SPAN poll, we tend to do it as we rank sports, up one athlete, down the other, zero-sum game, somebody is up, somebody else has to be down. And um, in America, one of the highest-ranked presidents is Franklin Roosevelt, modern president, and Coolidge was a polar opposite to Roosevelt. So people tend to think, if I like Roosevelt, I have to not like Coolidge. It's just as simple as that. Um not sure uh, that's helpful. Uh, Roosevelt had strengths. Coolidge had strengths. Different criteria, which is why it's nice. The C-SPAN poll has so many, many criteria in it. You know, different criteria, different guys, different bases from which to judge. But w- Roosevelt was for government intervention lots of the time, maybe all the time in a Mary fashion, Coolidge was for reducing government intervention. And that, too, is a problem in terms of popularity. How do you admire an antihero? How do you admire someone who makes everything smaller instead of everything bigger? Americans tend to like big. Think of Mount Rushmore, you know. Uh, Big is good. Um, So he's a kind of an odd hero. And and, uh, that's a factor, too in um, the way Coolidge is remembered and taught. He's scarcely taught in high school. He's kind of a footnote. Um, He's a seat warmer, you know, after Theodore Roosevelt and Wilson and before Franklin Roosevelt. uh, I I, I just conducted a review of high school textbooks, and Coolidge uh, isn't trashed. He, by and large, he just almost gets no attention. He's ignored, which is somehow worse. Moving to his words in the book, this is a little bit of a long paragraph. 
as you know, he talks a lot about his professors at Amherst, uh, which is in Massachusetts uh, private school. But he talked about Professor Garman, and you can put that into perspective in a moment. I'm going to read what he said, though. We looked upon Garman as a man who walked with God. His course was a demonstration of the existence of a personal God, of our power to know him, uh, that's in caps, of the divine eminence, and of the complete dependence of all the universe on him as the creator and father, quote, in whom we live and move and have our being, unquote. Could you write that today if you're a, a, a politician? And why do you think Coolidge wanted to emphasize that in his autobiography? Well, there's a big debate about whether you can mention deep religious faith, as a presidential candidate say. And uh, I'm often asked about that, and I, my answer is yes. Uh, I personally think the country respects faith. And they certainly did in Coolidge's time. What Garmin did, uh, I, he, what Garmin was not a great intellect. There's a reason we haven't heard of him. But what he did was he was a great with the students. He was one of those teachers who makes you feel like you matter. He had seminars when the other teachers just lectured from you know from their beards. It's, uh, you know, some old guy lecturing for an hour. Garmin talked to the young men, and they talked back. And that was incredibly appealing. But he also relieved the students by reminding them that this was not just about how great they were and proving they were great, the anxiety of the undergraduate, will I be great, but about whether they will render great service uh, to God, to the polity. Um, so it was sort of, oh, yeah, here's how I do it. If I stumble in the first year... Um, if if I stumble, all right, I'm serving God, uh, this version of garment pro, garment Protestantism, or, or my community. All right, well, I'm stumbling, but it's not about me. The, the spotlight is off me and onto the service, and that's very important for young people to understand that that this isn't just about them, and it's a relief. What if the year after college you completely screw up and do nothing and live at your mother's house. Well, if you go out and start beginning working uh, in small areas and do service, at least you did something. Uh, you know, um, the other point about Garmin, if you don't mind me men mentioning it, Brian, is he offered a famous image that stuck with Coolidge and it stuck with many others. He said, life is like a river. And when you, uh, the, the, the career life and you get out of college and you just are trying to figure out where you should get in the river. What's the right place? What's the wrong place? And, and young people will do that. He said, that doesn't matter so much as just getting in the river and riding along and avoiding the currents that would, that would beat you just ride along. And if you do a good job, just, Staying in the mainstream, you will become a man of power. That is, he did play to the young men's ambition as well. And that image is a wonderful image. Life is like a river. Don't be so particular about where you get in. Just get in, and it will carry you along. And you, you, you may not know what you want to be, but it will tell you. Your first job tells you a lot, even if it's not the job you selected as the ideal job for you. And over and over again, when we counsel young people, we see they're too picky about their first job or their second job being the right thing. No, we can never know what the right thing for us is until we try out in the workforce. Why did you decide to... Um 
spend a lot of time on the Coolidge Foundation. You're chairman of the board. When did that all start? That's a great question. Um, why? Uh, I'm, uh, I come at the world through economics, and I wrote a book called Forgotten Man, which C-SPAN treated very well um, about the 30s. And the, the short sentence description of the 30s is they broke it. That is, the government broke the economy. And then I became curious. What is it they broke? What what was good? How was the economy in the 20s? What was that good economy and who made it and who helped to make it and what policies? And that's when I came to Coolidge. And I remember uh, I ended up inserting him in the 30s history to explain what it was that was broken, which I hadn't expected. And I was quite intrigued with Coolidge because he was silent. Um, it, he is a familiar type to anyone who's lived in the Midwest. He's a little bit of a farming type, which is he doesn't say much. He didn't say much. He had a wry agricultural sense of humor, um, and he didn't praise easily. And I happen to have encountered also in my life a man boss like that named Robert Leroy Bartley, the editor uh, at the Wall Street Journal who ran the editorial page of the journal, who was from Iowa, and uh, from Ames, Iowa, an ag professor was the father of Bartley, and they the Bartleys had that non-talking, non-praising way. And working for someone like that is very frustrating. So you pay attention. They never say good, Coolidge, but uh, they do stick by their people when their people get in trouble. So I I came to appreciate this Bartley fellow more and more. My boss for more than ten years. And when I encountered Coolidge, I said, wow, Coolidge is the pre-incarnation of Robert Bartley. It's a, 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 it's a type uh, and a type of person um, who grows on you. Because when, also when you do something really good, eventually a, a word or two of praise comes. So, you know, when you're a biographer, how do you decide to devote two years to someone if he, you recognize him, it's easier, something from your own life. So that's the personal side. But the main thing was that Coolidge exemplified, uh, his policy exemplified the kind of policy it seemed to me needed in the United States. So why hadn't we studied, why weren't we studying everything Coolidge did? Ronald Reagan uh, took a good look at Coolidge policy, but since then, few have. You also... Um have a footnote on page 73 about a man named Winthrop Murray Crane. And again, this is what uh, Calvin Coolidge wrote in his autobiography. My activities were such that I began to see more of the Honorable W. Murray Crane. Coolidge writes, he confirmed my opinion as to the value of a, of a silence, which avoids creating a situation where one would otherwise not exist. And the bad taste and the danger of arousing animosities and advertising an opponent by making any attack on him. And, you know, we always hear about Silent Cal, but do you think that was, uh, well, talk about uh, Murray Crane, but also was that a, a technique that he used uh, after he learned the value of silence? Absolutely. No one who is shy becomes president, really. I mean, you might be temperamentally shy. You might be shy according to a Myers-Briggs test, but you've overcome it because you work intensely with people uh, in politics. 
Murray Crane was a kind of, I would say, pre-17th Amendment creature. That is to say, he became a, a national senator or a senator at a time when state senates selected U.S. senators. What does that mean? The state senate knew people. It didn't name people to the U.S. Senate on first impression basis, seeing them once on television um, and say, that person, that's it. They know the people very well. So it's another time, uh, you know, where the nation picked people for an important body uh, in a careful way over over time after much experience with them. Crane was uh, actually a businessman, the Crane Paper Company, is in Western Massachusetts. Um, it printed the U.S. dollar for the government. It was a serious paper company. It didn't just make what you buy uh, to write a condolence note or a thank you note. It printed the, our money. So he, he he ran that company and eventually got into politics. He didn't give a lot of speeches, but everyone in the Senate and in politics knew him. So he had that advantage, and he pushed hard for laws. His rule was do, don't talk. And temperamentally, he was more like Coolidge. Coolidge under-promised and over-delivered. Uh, and I think once Coolidge found Crane, he knew how to comport himself, even though, of course, he operated more in a modern progressive period. By the time Coolidge was president, the 17th Amendment had got rid of the Senate picking of the U.S. state Senate picking of the U.S. Senate. But there was still that culture. Um, the, uh, the other point is there was another senator who was important from the Bay State, and that was Henry Cabot Lodge. And Henry Cabot Lodge was a yap mouth show off, um, the dignitary from Boston, kind of American royalty. And Coolidge was not like Henry Cabot Lodge. Um, and they didn't get along particularly well because Lodge in the Lodge's universe, only one person existed, Henry Cabot Lodge. He had no sense of service in Coolidge's view. And uh, so, you you know, you pick your heroes uh, also in opposition to someone who is your anti-hero. Right. So you, it, it, Coolidge picked his guy and it was the quiet crane, not the loudmouth Cabot Lodge. I, I feel a little bad about trashing the lodge in this way, but it, 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 I do it to make the distinction between the types. This morning, just before, uh, and this is being recorded in the middle of October, but this morning before uh, we started talking, I checked online to find out where I could get this book because a friend of mine heard that this book existed, went to a bookstore, couldn't buy it. I know that things are moving and changing, but I got online and, and when I went to ISI, the publisher, the book was 17-something. When I got on Amazon, it was $55 for some reason or other, and it's a paperback. And then when I got on your website, the Coolidge Foundation, it was $22. So give me the background on why the different prices and where would you recommend somebody go buy this book? Well, I don't know. I don't want to misspeak. I don't know whether ISI actually has the book. This is a dynamic situation. We're really fortunate. The book sold out like crazy. So ISI is printing more. Um, but meantime, there's a premium price. What that Amazon price is probably is a private sector seller, a third party with a new one. Uh, you know, the book market is like any other market. The price goes up and down according to demand. And we're just very blessed that there's strong demand for this book 
So we do have books to sell as you, Brian, and I speak at the Coolidge Foundation. I know that because I know where the closet is. Um, and so we hope you, you buy them there or if you can from ISI. And we know that Amazon will have books again soon. How much is the sale of this book uh, as a result of that positive review you got in your old newspaper, The Wall Street Journal? How much is that? Well, it's affected. It, you know, we had the Wall Street Journal um, published a review of a hundred year old book, which is itself amazing. Right. Uh, it, it, or 90 year old book. Um, it, it, uh, and that review was by a fellow I don't really know named Barton Swain. And he wrote a lovely review in which he captured the spirit of the book. It wasn't just a friendly review. He, he captured the spirit of the book. And that uh, triggered many purchases, apparently. I also, it happened to appear on Michael Medved about the book, and now I get to be on C-SPAN. So hopefully Matt Denhart, the other editor, and I, and the Coolidge family, and particularly Calvin Coolidge, will benefit um, from the sales. That is, uh, the, the foundation gets the money, I should be clear. We'll benefit from the glory. The Coolidge Foundation gets the money. And if you buy the book from the Coolidge Foundation, your money will go to publish more books or fund little kids learning about Coolidge. Now, this book was published in 1929, and just four years later, Calvin Coolidge died at age 60. Did people in those days know that uh, he was fragile, or was he uh, up until the end? Um, he had something like um, trouble breathing. We might call, I don't know the diagnosis he would get today, but something like COPD. Um, and it was very sad. He he passed away um, when he was younger um, than than us now. Um, I I am not sure. You know, there's a whole argument, and there's a historian named Gilbert who had a whole argument that Coolidge was too ill to to run for office again in 28, which he might have done. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure he knew that. Men in those days died all the time. There was <laughs> suddenly. Um, there were no statins, there were no diabetes medicines, there were no antibiotics. So you would see men in their prime just tragically cork off um, in the Senate. We can think of a lot of them or in, you know, in Congress, in the flower of their of their career. Um, so so we're not trying to get at whether Coolidge was deeply ill, but he, he seemed to be sick in the last few months of his life. Maybe he had pneumonia. Um, now we're getting into speculation. But again, remember, there were no antibiotics. So if you got bronchitis, that was a serious thing. And he lived in Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, and his papers, some of his papers at least, are at the Forbes Library there at Smith College. And Amity Slays, I'm going to go back to the book on page 103, again, read some things that he said there. But before I ask you, uh, before I do that, how do you know that he wrote this book himself? I don't. I would surmise that he did because he wrote most things himself. Uh, his, our surest safeguard in the contention that he wrote it was his pride as a writer. Um, there was a painter named Carcato. He kind of liked who painted him and talked about his own works. And Coolidge waved to the bookshelf behind him and said, those are my paintings. Uh, the most important thing, if you ask Coolidge, who are you? Well, I'm a lawyer. Well, who are you beyond a politician? I'm a writer. 
he thought about words. So I doubt that Coolidge would have deputized anyone to to write this book when there was one there were a few speeches that Coolidge gave that weren't all his own and he um, one of them at least relating to music he was not musical he uh, disincluded did not include from a speech collection um, because if he was going to publish a darn book of his speeches damn it excuse my language uh, darn it he was going to publish only speeches he had written Uh, so um, it would be highly unlikely that he did not write this book, his autobiography. Back to what I was about to read. Uh, when he was elected vice president with Warren Harding, he came to Washington and needed a place to live. And he said it had been his intention to take a house in Washington, but found none to our liking. They were too small or too large. It was necessary for me to live within my income. Then he says it's difficult to conceive a person finding himself in a situation which calls on him to maintain a position he cannot pay for. Any other course for me would have been cut short by the barnyard philosophy of my father, who would have contemptuously referred to such action as the senseless imitation of a fowl which was attempting to light higher than it could roost. There is no dignity quite so impressive and no independence quite so important as living within your means. In our country, a small income is usually less embarrassing than the possession of a large one. And that leads to the fact that he lived at the new Willard Hotel, which has been called the Willard and called uh, just uh, Willard's. And Abraham Lincoln was there the night before he was inaugurated. But anyway, what do you want to say about that passage and the way he lived at the New Willard? Well, the Coolidge's uh, didn't like to show off, but they did respect the dignity of the office. When he was president, he didn't live at the Willard. He lived in the White House. Um, They had some nice houses they rented for summer White Houses while he was president. Um, so he would live somewhere grand if it helped the dignity, if it, it, it burnished the office he was serving. But he didn't want to be grand just on his own. It, he was in the same position U.S. ambassadors are in. Who pays for the entertainment of a U.S. ambassador when he's in Paris? That's why a lot of ambassadors, um, people selected, uh, nominated, uh, sent, are um, well-to-do fellows and ladies because it's costly. And it, that bothered him. That bothered him to be uh, very it even bothered him to spend money in the White House. There's a very amusing story. Um, There was a lady, Mrs. Jaffray, who was the White House housekeeper, and she went around in the broom and shopped at the specialty shops. And this bugged Coolidge, uh, partly because he had to pay for some of it. And eventually he laid Mrs. Jaffray off, who had been there since the Taft which was dangerous. She was a very uh, talkative lady, and she went off and wrote a book about her life in the White House, which wasn't particularly friendly to the man who discharged her, Coolidge. (laughs) But Coolidge felt the principle was important and the savings were important, and he hired Miss Riley from New England, where he came from, and she religiously saved money and counted every ham in her notebook, and he would write um, again to the point that he didn't praise much good or good job when she cut the White House entertainment budget. Another paragraph from his book, these are his writings, 
It is difficult for men in high office to avoid the malady of self-delusion. They are always surrounded by worshipers. They are constantly and for the most part sincerely assured of their greatness. They live in an artificial atmosphere of adulation and exaltation, which sooner or later impairs their judgment. Your reaction? True. True. What he's saying is don't stay too long. You decide you're going to become king, right? How many politicians do we know who try to figure out ways to serve another term and even to change the statute so they can serve another term? Um, mayors, um, often, right? Uh, so he really didn't like that. And that was, uh, again, due to his concern for our republic. Follow, if we erode the rules, um, when we're gone, the rules won't be there either. The rules are more important than the individual. So some historians will folks say he was insecure, he had imposter syndrome. Okay, he might have, but why? Uh, he wasn't really insecure. It was more he was devoted to um, showing, demonstrating respect for the presidency and seeing to it that the country demonstrated respect for the presidency. So he chose not to run again in 28, and partly that was um, because he thought that um, men weren't that important, so whoever was in the White House should should change in and out from time to time. Uh, and the longer you stayed, the vainer you became, as the as the quote suggests. So, all right, he would change out. Um, but, but this ought to be a rotating job. That's the idea. That was the framers' idea. But it's very um, amusing and also just deeply interesting to watch him talk through this decision because the GOP then absolutely wasn't about to pat him on the back and say, good job for standing up for principle, Mr. President. They were furious because they knew that he was likely to have a strong victory if he did run in 28. Um, He had been elected on his own in 24 with an astounding absolute majority over two other parties. And they wanted to ride on his big coattails. So sometimes when you do the right thing and you turn around and look for the praise, you don't get it, right? And you're all alone. That's what happened to Coolidge. And people don't always applaud you for doing the right thing. It was the right thing um, in a principled sense to not run again for Coolidge. Correct me if any of these statistics are wrong, but he had 382 electoral votes in 24 against 136 for, uh, what was it, John Davis? Um He had 35 states. His opponent had 12. Popular vote, 15.7 million to 8.3 million. There were three candidates. Uh, And that only 48.9% of the eligible voters voted that year. Are those statistics right? Oh, gosh. Well, I think they're – I don't know. But I think they're sort of globally right because he – there were two candidates. There was John Davis and there was La Follette, the progressive. And La Follette took a parole-like share of the vote, something serious, like 16 or 17 percent of the popular vote. So La Follette plus Davis, still the sum of the popular votes was lower than what Coolidge took. That's why he had an absolute majority rather than a plurality victory, as in the case, I think, of Bill Clinton. Now you're testing me when there was Perot, 
it's rare to take an absolute majority when there are three parties. And Coolidge did that. The country also, you know, in those days, wasn't sure the presidency was as important as we, we think it is now. Um, so that may explain the turnout. Um, people were satisfied with their lives. Um, but still, Coolidge's victory was very impressive in 24. How he got into that situation, he was vice president. Warren Harding passed away, the president. The presidency was besmirched by the Teapot Dome scandal. Uh, Coolidge comes in as lame duck vice president and instead of um, failing, triumphs and wins in 24 uh, a year plus later um, and is president on it by, you know, by election from 24 to 28 pursuing the continuation of Harding policy. So that's another point. Coolidge was quite meticulous. He went back to the 20 platform. He says, this is what we were elected on. I'm going to fulfill it, even if Harding is gone. The man matters less than the promise. Very unusual. He didn't change the direction of the Republican Party, which one would be tempted to do just for fun and to brand yourself politically. None of that. I grabbed something from one of his speeches that he made that you have in the back. Uh, it was uh, his speech in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, and you also have pointed out over the years, and we've talked about this before, that he had six years of surplus uh, over the time that he was in, in office. But I want to read this paragraph from uh, one of these speeches in the book. The next most pressing problem was the better ordering of the finances of the nation, Our government was costing almost more than it was worth. It had more people on the payroll than were necessary, all of which made expenses too much and taxes too high. This inflated condition contributed to the Depression, which began in 1920, something you've spent a lot of time on. Could you apply that to our government today, that same paragraph? Probably. Um, Our government's often much bigger as a share of the economy. Um, yes, uh, there's a thing also which he's getting at. I don't know what term he would use, but what we call malinvestment, which is, is government money being used as well as money would be in the private sector? Probably not, right? Bridges to nowhere. There's a lot of off investment when government invests. So he, he was looking at the 20, the downturn of the early 20s, which is the one actually that F. Scott Fitzgerald is describing in Great Gatsby. Gatsby was published in 25. Um, so, and saying, well, if the government gets out of the way and shrinks itself, then the private sector will provide more jobs, but the government has to get out of the way. And how do you go about getting out of the way? You cut budgets. Coolidge actually cut budgets. That's remarkable. He didn't just reduce their increase, which is what we talk about today, mean today when we talk about cutting the budget. He actually cut the budget. But, of course, he also undertook measures to permit uh, private sector growth. Most specifically, he um, and we have an exhibit about this at Coolidge House. Um, Most specifically, he cut the tax rates uh, quite a bit um, at the top in particular. uh, And yet. Um, so that you go from the 50 range to a top marginal rate um, of 25% on the income tax. There was also a great concern about capital gains under discussion now today. 
And how would you treat capital gains? Remember, taxes, federal taxes were new at that time. The 16th Amendment had just become law. Uh, Some people thought that capital gains should be taxed as ordinary income, which would be uh, 50%. Other people thought they shouldn't be taxed at all. There's a good argument for that in tax theory. Um, He and Mellon and Harding, really, um, Harding, uh, fixed the cap gains rate when you buy and sell a stock or when you sell your house now at 12 to 13 percent, which was tolerable. Coolidge understood and and the economy grew quite strong. We had low unemployment, plenty of jobs, interesting jobs, an enormous increase in the quality of life. um, People got cars, people got toilets. Uh, That's a measure we look at today. Do, Do families have indoor plumbing? You know, when we study the third world, right, the developing world, do 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 you know what's the difference between abject poverty and being poor and working poor? Definitely indoor plumbing. People got uh, radios. Uh, households got electric appliances, so that um, housework was halved. The twenties were a strong decade for the working man, and those tax policies contributed to to making them so. Um, so it wasn't just the budgeteering. Coolidge, uh, Coolidge didn't believe in mindless cuts. He said that was a bad parsimony. He said you have to be uh, wise in making choices of where you cut, and you have to make sure growth is possible. You've uh, been involved in the Coolidge Foundation for a lot of years, uh, and they have the Plymouth Notch home area for him where he's buried, uh, North Hampton, Massachusetts, where he was the mayor and, and involved. And then you mentioned the Coolidge House. The, one of the questions I want to ask you about the Coolidge House, if my memory serves, <clears throat> that home here in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown, used to be owned by Claiborne Pell, who could probably not be any farther away from philosophically from Calvin Coolidge uh, than he was. And why did you decide you wanted a house here in Washington and what do you use it for? It, it, well, it's turned out to be a wonderful thing. It, uh, Claiborne Powell, we have a portrait of Claiborne Powell right in the entryway to honor Senator Powell. And uh, one reason is Senator Powell was interested in college and scholarships. Students have heard of Pell Grants. Um, which uh, make college affordable for many students. And we have a scholarship too, the Coolidge Scholarship, which is an academic merit scholarship hotly contested this year. We had 4,700 candidates for five scholarships. Um, and all the candidates, by the way, wrote essays about Calvin Coolidge. Um, so what we discovered over the years at the Notch, which is still our home, Plymouth Notch in Vermont, the mo- most beautiful site where Mr. Lamb has been and talked to students, is people pass through there to learn about Coolidge and see his grave so humble, not taller than the graves around it. Very interesting. But they also come to Washington to do what generally could be called presidential tourism. And if Coolidge, is, Coolidge wasn't just president of Vermont, he was president of the other States, uh, and they have a hunger for knowledge about presidents um, when they arrive in Washington and want to learn. So, we established this base in this house, which was built, by the way, by the family of George Mason, who had some things in common with Coolidge, uh, definitely a commitment to states' rights and federalism. And uh, it's a nice place for students to come, and we have a Coolidge exhibit 
They're um, designed for high schoolers. And if you contact our office, we may be able to arrange, uh, arrange a school visit for your kids. It's not an open house like a museum. You can go five days a week. But our job is to be sure we're there for individual classes, uh, particularly in COVID time. You have to make an appointment, unfortunately. Um, but we want to show your kids this exhibit. And we have a um, couple uh, staffers there who are expert in Coolidge. We also have something new, which is important for schools. I'm happy to say we have a friend who is a Coolidge reenactor. Uh, and that is his name is Tracy Mezger, but he's Calvin Coolidge himself when he puts his top hat on. And he has the right time, and your students can ask Calvin questions, and the president will answer them. Won't that be wonderful? Want to go back to so he can be uh, at the Notch or in Washington uh, with kids if you give us some advance notice. This is a little bit off the wall, but you mentioned George Mason uh, originally in that house. What would Calvin Coolidge have done? If he had been at, because he writes a lot about the Constitution in, in this book, if he'd have been at the Constitutional Convention, like George Mason, who was one of three there that voted against the Constitution, do you think he would have done the same thing? No, but he would have understood the emphasis on states' rights that the anti-federalists um, cared about, right? Uh, but that is awfully awfully uh, arrogant of me to even surmise on that point. Um, <laughs> so you always have those trick questions. Coolidge believed in states, and he, but mainly he believed that the Constitution was the law. Um, so we, he was an originalist, if you would say that. He was also a reformer, but mainly he was an originalist, if you look at the balance of his work. And he tried to honor the intent of the framers. Um, it was the Constitution was the law. He didn't particularly want to change it. In the book you're looking at, which I hope everyone will um, have a look at, it's also got a happy cover. Calvin is throwing out a baseball because I thought too many of the covers of Coolidge books are door. Um, you'll see a lot of emphasis in honoring the law, um, honoring the law as it is, and, and supporting the rule of law. Coolidge had another phrase. He said reign of law. R-E-I-G-N, but it, it amounts to the same. If you undermine law, well, it's not there for you later. And, and of course, they had a real-life experiment with that in the Prohibition period when he was president, and it was deeply irritating to him to see the way law itself was eroded by a strong law of Prohibition and, and, and the lack of uh, respect for that law. It was it was Coolidge's treasury that had to send out the Coast Guard boats to stop the bootlegger craft coming to deliver liquor at night on the shores of the United States. I mean, he had to pay for that, and that cut into his budget and irritated him. People ought to know also this is not a long book. It's 158 pages as you published it. There was a um, footnote and a quote that jumped out at me. I wanted your reaction to it. The uh, famous journalist and legend H.L. Mencken, as you say in the footnote, said Coolidge was, quote, as appalling and as fascinating as a two-headed boy, unquote. Why did you put that in there? Just to show the liveliness of the criticism of Coolidge. I mean, people, a lot of it, people, intellectuals in particular, people with big vocabs, read Coolidge 
as too simple and kind of an idiot. That's a bit crazy. Um, but but there it is. It, you know, some people like people who talk with big words. Coolidge tended not to. That's what makes his writing hold up. Uh, if you go back and read the writing, say, of Harding, who had a, used a larger vocabulary and had, had an unfortunate affection for alliteration, it, it comes off as dated and flowery. Coolidge talked straight, uh, and it, that, therefore his writing holds up. It, uh, I, I think Coolidge writes in homiletic fashion. He writes like a good sermon, and a good sermon is pretty short. Um, it's not an hour. Uh, it's 18 minutes, 10 minutes, 8 minutes. Uh, you, you can pick 8 minutes. So um, I, I think that was just uh, a, a lot of the, I don't know about Mencken, but a lot of the critics of Coolidge were really progressives, and they didn't have an argument against his economic success and the success of his presidency because he cleaned it up, up after Harding besmirched it. So they went ad hominem, which is what people do do. When they don't have an argument against your substance, they will attack your person. Um, and that was unfortunate. There's also a book called The Man Who Knew Coolidge by Sinclair Lewis. You're testing me. Not a friendly book about Coolidge, a book mockering Rotarian America. And um, Coolidge probably didn't like that. Um, and it, his he uh, made a rare error and betrayed his frustration in a column about Sinclair Lewis subsequent to his presidency. And he criticized Sinclair Lewis. But generally, Coolidge just ignored these big mouth critics uh, because he knew he was succeeding and he was popular. We'll wrap it up soon. Um, the uh, Another well, one thing is that there were 120 million people in the country when he left office in 1928, and there are now 331 million in the country. But, but back to the another footnote, just as br- very brief, uh, you quote a biographer by the name of Hendrik Borum, if that's the way you pronounce it, noted in the book The Provincial Calvin Coolidge and His World, 1885 to 1895. You say, she had been the jolly one in the dour Coolidge family. And my memory is he's talking about his sister who died young. Um, why why would he refer to it a dour Coolidge family? Well, they were fairly silent, right, uh, all of them. Maybe I picked um, – did he say that or did I say that? No, uh, no, the biographer said that about uh, his sister. Yeah, they were, a bit, they were a bit quiet, agriculture, right? And then they had a lot of loss. The mother of the president passed when he was a boy, and then sister passed. This is Abby, um, and she was a jolly girl and kind of enterprise ready. Uh, you, you could start teaching school if you got a certain certificate by age fourteen in those days. High school wasn't a, a fact. Um, you know, a lot of the kids didn't get high school, so if you got a pretty good grade school degree. And a certificate. And I remember Abby wrote her father and said, uh, find me a job, please. I want to be a school teacher. And she was not 15 or 16. And she passed away in high school um, of what we think might be appendicitis. We don't really know. But can you imagine losing your sister and your mother? And father had to deal with that. Death was a fact of life to people in this period. 
that's what made them different to us. They expected to die and they experienced death. Um, so there was no question about the persevering part. But, of course, it was rough. Father Coolidge, John Coolidge, remarried, um, and Coolidge called his stepmom Carrie Mother. And sometimes you wonder about that, but they had a view that um, we move on, and the new mother is the mother. And I thought that was kind of lovable of him, that he worked so hard, too, to, to sustain Carrie's health. She She became sick as well and did not live as long as father. You know, they understood that that life isn't easy, um, and they understood about death. Uh, last question, and let you go. Uh, seven chapters in this book. First one, scenes of my childhood. The last one, why I did not choose to run. Do you have a favorite of those seven chapters? Oh, well, why I did not choose to run is very important. And I'm not sure which chapter it's in, but Coolidge said it's important. It's a great safety to the country that when the president knows he's not a great man. Um, And I thought, well, let's just post that on the wall. None of us is great. We're all just pretty good servants on good days and on bad days worse than that. Um, and I really liked that line, his explanation. He didn't say I was sick and coughing a lot. He did. Yeah, he he said, "Look, I, as as the, the part you read, um, maybe we should change office from time to time. That would be healthy. And none of us is great. We're just servants of office." There's a very good anecdote. Um, Coolidge is walking along outside with a senator, Selden Spencer walking along outside and to cheer Coolidge up. He was grumpy sometimes. The senator asked, what lucky fellow gets to live in the house with the white pillars over there on Pennsylvania Avenue? And Coolidge said, nobody. They just come and go. The man is not the office. Very interesting, counterintuitive line that um, could serve us today. Amity Slays, chairman of the board of the Coolidge Foundation, writer, journalist, uh, autobiographer. No, not yet. Uh, biographer. Maybe you'll, there'll be a day oh, when we... Never. Have, no? No? Okay. Thank you very much. Oh, no. <laughs> thank you, Amity Slays, for joining us on this discussion of the autobiography of Colin Coolidge. And thank you, Brian, for and C-SPAN, for being so attentive to Calvin uh, from long before my day with many shows about Coolidge and trips to the Notch to see his boyhood village. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 